0: Central.com.
1: Right. Well, I found a really interesting book the other day. It's called Rescue from Global Crisis to a Better World. The author is a man called Ian Golden, and um, it's got some incredibly uh, powerful uh, endorsements on it, this book. But I'll tell you who Ian is quickly. He joins me from uh, where are you in Oxford at the moment? Oxford. That's right. Very good. Well, you're a professor of globalization and development at Oxford University. That's no small job, that. I mean, globalization, Do you, is there a bigger subject, Ian? <laughs> it certainly covers a lot. <laughs> it's huge. Also, you talk about the uh, future of work, technological and economic change, the future of development. And you also were in South Africa before that. Am I right? You were at the yep, development. I was,
0: back. Well, I was born in Pretoria, so I'm <laughs> very much a South African product. And uh, went to UCT uh, for my first degree. And then I left and I went back to South Africa when President Mandela became president. And I was the first CEO of the Development Bank of Southern Africa in a democratic South Africa. I did that for five years. And, uh, yeah, so certainly have been involved and stay involved.
1: Well, you've also been involved in in advising many governments all over the world, and I'm really interested in talking to you about the subject of this latest book, Rescue. So let's just paint the picture for people of exactly what prompted this, because there's no doubt uh, a majority of people in the world who are hoping for someone to rescue them. Um, we've been through a pandemic. I don't know if you've uh, you've seen the latest news out of South Africa, but we just had riots and all kinds of uh, yeah, very things. much. And generally uncivilized behavior in places like KwaZulu-Natal and in We've also just been starting to see the, the 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 latest incarnation of Cuban people trying to revolt against the oppressive state that they have in control of them there. And there are plenty of other examples. I mean, in France there are all these protests going on at the moment. I know you have a very close relationship with the French too. So, what exactly are we in need of rescue from? Because there seem to be many factors and. And is there anyone who can rescue us?
0: <laughs> well, we, we we are in need of rescue. Uh, you know, the things are not good in the world. Uh, obviously, we have the pandemic. Uh, we have rising inequality, massive unemployment and problems in South Africa. But in many other places, yeah. 125 million people pushed into extreme poverty by the pandemic, uh, on top of those that were in poverty before, which is well over a billion um we have escalating climate change and we basically have a system which is unstable so mm-hmm. what i argue in rescue is that if we bounce back or we even bounce forward along the same tracks that we've been on we're basically heading over a precipice that's why over a cliff that's why i don't like the language of reset either because that implies we reset back to the operating system that we had before. But what we really need is different ways of doing things. We need a much more cohesive world. Uh, We need to address these fundamental problems we had if we want to have a bright future for ourselves, for our children, for humanity. And so this uh, pandemic, I hope, is the wake-up call. It might not be, but if it's not, then we basically go back to a more unstable, dangerous world. Where we'll have more pandemics and lots more problems. So I hope it's a wake up call, and that's why I wrote the book. Who's going to rescue us? We've got to rescue ourselves. There's no, you know, big brother out there that's going to wave a magic wand and we're going to be no, rescued. Certainly. Just, just um, looking
1: at, looking at but, the way the governments have, have have reacted to this, there isn't one that came out covered in glory, is well, there?
0: Well, really? but there's very different. No one government, you know, has been perfect, but the range of uh, of differences is huge, and it's not about rich or poor countries. There are some very poor countries, countries like Vietnam, countries like Mongolia, even uh, that have done really well, have recorded virtually zero deaths uh, mm-hmm. through the pandemic. Uh, there's some very rich countries, including the UK and the US. Uh, who've done really terribly. There's some democratic countries uh, like the UK and US, uh, Brazil, South Africa, that haven't done very well. Uh, And there's some that have done well, and there's some autocratic countries. So it's not the old simple things that determine it. But it is about leadership. It's about the reaction of um, governments, and it's about citizens doing the right thing. And basically, the countries that followed the WHO guidelines quick and early uh, have done better but then there's also the economics and that's where the rich countries have been in a much better situation
1: despite the fact that the WHO have also con- you know considerably told untruths and mistruths at every given opportunity and despite being i will contest that Craig. (laughs) i'm not going to start off by (laughs) so we we went into this with high hopes that it would allow us to reset things and i I also am not a huge fan of the term reset which you mentioned you're not either earlier but Mm. do you think that that having looked at it from the other side now and many countries are starting to come out of this Um, vaccinations are up and and many places are starting to return to whatever normal is. Do you think we've learned anything and have we progressed any further along that continuum of the things that you think societies will value in the future? I think so. Um, It's very different in different countries. But,
0: you know, what we've learned in many rich countries is that governments are very powerful. Um, They can do things which would have been regarded as absolutely impossible uh, in January 2020. Um, t- support workers, support firms, uh, create furlough schemes, run you know, them. The development of the vaccination over a nine month period was unprecedented. That took 10 years uh, in previous the pandemics. So there's been a lot of good news. And we've also learned as individuals that we can change our behavior. You know, if government had said in January 2020, it would tell us when we can hug our friends. <laughs> I'd think I was living in North Korea or something. But, um, but that's been possible. So we've, we've learned a huge amount about our ability to change our behavior. We've learned a huge amount of government, what governments can and can't do and we, the strengths and weaknesses. There have been some massive weaknesses, not least international solidarity on vaccines, on money. Uh, but there have also been some real strengths, like the development of the vaccine. So I think we have learned, yeah.
1: I'm, I'm concerned, though, that the, there seems to be this disconnect between those in power, those in the academy, and those in the media, and the rest of the world. Because there's an absolute deficit of trust when it comes to the media, governments, and the academy, frankly. Um, most people in the world just do not believe that stuff. And they've started to fall out with the global agenda that's been That's been proffered, which I must be honest with you, seems on paper to be a pretty good thing. I don't have any personal objection to it, but I found myself because of things like, should we wear the masks? Shouldn't we wear the masks? Are these vaccines healthy? Are they not? There's just been an absolute disdain for the mainstream opinion on all of this. And and not just here in South Africa, where, frankly, lockdown didn't work at all. People just carried on doing whatever they did before. Uh, The township economies continued as they always did. And, you know, we had, I suppose, as many people die as we might have during a really bad flu season, plus perhaps 5000. But most people don't listen to the government. And in this country, most people don't want to because they don't trust the government. And, and that's true, again, for media and for, and for academics, too. How do you think that works in the rest of the world?
0: I, I think Gareth, uh, that's quite a generalisation. Um, you know, in some countries there's very high levels of trust and following governments, not least in Asian um, countries. Uh, in the UK, they I have would much say.
1: Choice in China, do they?
0: No, but they have a huge choice in South Korea or Japan or Taiwan, which are you know vibrant democracies, uh, and people do so. I think it's not just about autocracy. Uh, there's some very democratic countries. Uh, where people are doing things. Australia and New Zealand, I'm not sure I agree with their policies, but they certainly are getting very high levels of compliance, um, with, with policies. And, and I think the situation in, in Europe, uh, is mixed. And in the U.S., what's fascinating is the difference between different states. You know, you yeah. see some states which have 90% compliance and you see some states which have 30% compliance. So, I wouldn't say that it's everywhere that is non-compliance, but it, trust is certainly at an all-time low um, in many areas, not so much in scientists. you know. I mean, at least uh, everyone's hoping that they're going to get a vaccine and that, the, and that the vaccines work, except the anti-vax movement. And then I think social media has a huge role to play in the reduction in trust. Most people are getting their information from new silos, and that is a real problem. Uh because it just you know, and I imagine it's one of the reasons you've started um this is that the the where people get the information shapes what they think. And that that has I think become much more siloed and, and less trustworthy.
1: I'm also interested because you, you say in your book that we've got to do capitalism slightly differently. And, and you have some interesting suggestions, which I'd like you to tell us about in a minute. But there also seems to be a bit of collusion between governments, big business, big media all over the world, to the extent that ordinary people are prepared to uh, to take to the streets and to disbelieve the kinds of things they might have before. And I'm talking obviously about mostly you know, liberal Western democracies here. Um, it, you know, compliance in in Asia is part of the culture more than anything else. I don't think we can really talk about government there because whether it's an autocracy, as is as, as the case in Singapore, for example, or a, a democracy like in Japan, they seem to, in that part of the world, generally follow the rules a lot better than people who are more rebellious in parts of the world, like Africa, for example, where we've learned not to trust governments. Um, to to our own advantage and and to the government's hopeful de- detriment, but I wonder if capitalism hasn't also crony capitalism anyway hasn't done itself an enormous disservice by allying itself with the machinery of state in so many places and where they're after to profit together and the people are the losers in that situation.
0: Yeah, I think uh, crony capitalism, corruption. Ah, uh, capture by business elites of government, or getting into bed. We saw this, you know, classically with, with the Zuma years, uh, and 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 with the Gupta saga. Uh, but in many many uh, countries, that sort of high level of integration, and certainly something that we've observed in the UK. Uh, leads to huge mistrust. And it also stifles small business, which of course, small business is the generator of jobs. It is where, uh, the vibrancy is. It's the challenge. These questions are being raised of the big tech companies now. Um, the fangs, you know, Google, Amazon, Netflix, Facebook. Uh, are they too big? Are they allowing competition? And any time that a, corporates get so big that, and, and especially when they get into bed with, Government, it's a very, very dangerous situation, and we've seen this. I mean, the apartheid government was like that. It had a symbiotic relationship yeah. with some businesses, um, business groups in South Africa, uh, who profited mightily from sanctions and other things. Uh, yeah, the, the and uh, that and stuff. yeah, uh, yeah, um, and and there's a, a constant danger, which is why competition policy is really important. It's also a reason, one of the reasons I believe in uh, trade is because trade, you know, buying things from another country gives you that option of not relying on local monopolies. And if you can get it cheaper and better from elsewhere, uh, that's good for consumers. So um so but then how this so how this works and how to stop corruption is absolutely central to the game. And I think it is one of the reasons why we've seen rising inequality. A lot of these global companies of course don't pay tax either. So that adds to the complexity, but it also leads to weakness of governments and the ability of governments to redistribute and support people.
1: So there are three things there that I wanted to refer to quickly. Small businesses, obviously governments don't like small businesses because they're harder to to make conform to the general uh, rules. And obviously... Small businesses prefer to deal with other small businesses than to deal with governments or big corporations for very obvious reasons. They also know their clients and their customers better than the bigger corporations do. So government can't um, pressure them the way that they might, the big ones, but they also can't really help them because government policy is much more gray than it is black and white at the small business level. I mean, again, I'll mention the township economies here in South Africa, which I know you're familiar with. And, we we don't really have any regulation there, and it works just fine, thank you very much. The other thing is, um, and, and I'd like you to comment on that, but I'm going to list the other one in the meantime. The trade idea, the, the idea of free trade, this also counts government out of the, the bargain a lot of the time. Because if I'm dealing directly with you, what do we need a middleman for with all of their customs and rates and taxes and basically, uh, you know, at the barrel of a gun, forcing some money out of both of us when we're actually just trying to trade with each other?
0: Yeah. Um, the small businesses you know are the lifeblood of economies, and small businesses become big businesses very seldom and sometimes most many at times they go bankrupt but that 's the creative destruction process which leads economies to to create jobs and flourish over time and and you 're right i mean the very high share of small businesses you know in the, an individual cutting Someone's hair on the street corner or selling some food is a small business in some respect. Uh, just operate independently of, of the system. They're not highly regulated. They, they need a lot. And I was, you know, we created Cooler, which was small business group, uh, and we did many things when I was in the first government, democratic government in South Africa, to try and support small businesses. So I think it's a bit of a generalization to say that
1: governments want to kill small businesses. I, I can assure you, currently, uh, we have a minister of small business, and I cannot name a single small business that she has helped. So okay, I think, all right, I think... but, uh, but
0: I mean, <laughs> there are ways you can help small business, like create small business loans, for example. Which, well, just, you know, well,
1: government can just get out of the way. That's um, usually-
0: But also small businesses depend on the things that people depend on. You need electricity if you want to have a, you sell meat, you know, and have a fridge. You, well, you, or, um, you need, you need water. You need, uh, you know, lighting in the road. So it's safe. You need police and security. So you're safe. So I small mean, businesses depend, you know, if, if you have a, a country which doesn't have location in a country that doesn't have those things, it's very difficult for small businesses to thrive uh, without those things. So what small businesses really need is a good governance framework, uh, allows competition and good infrastructure. Uh, And of course, they also thrive if people are wealthier, so they buy things from them. So when the economy grows, small businesses thrive. So. They need lots of things, but often it's not direct. Uh, it's sort of indirect stuff. On, on trade, um, there's, you know, it, it's always been attention. Uh, governments try to support, uh, through tariffs, domestic industries often, or even through uh, quotas and in other ways through procurement policies. And that often is counterproductive. Um, on the other hand, one does need some control on trade. Not all trade is good. You have trade in really bad things, uh, not you know drugs, human, human trafficking, arms uh, etc and you also do at some point want to think about whether things are being dumped on your economy and it will just wipe out all your small businesses or all your businesses because somewhere else is doing them either in using child labor or in unfair conditions, or they're subsidizing their exports, in effect. and that's So there are legitimate concerns of government when it comes to trade, uh, but that doesn't take away my broad support uh, for having a more competitive trade environment.
1: Well, I think that's a a very valid point that you make about trade. And and I, again, have to say, when you mentioned the small business thing and the basics that are required for small businesses, which government should be involved in, i.e. infrastructure, I mean, again... I'm going to refer you back to your, your former homeland here and say that we we don't have electricity supply from government. It has been completely hollowed out, and it is now a dysfunctional state-owned enterprise, as is much of what the state has touched. If it weren't for private industry in this country, we certainly wouldn't have vaccines reaching as many people, or rather as few people as they have reached. And I can give you countless other examples of pre- precisely how government has been a problem rather than a solution for most people so i mean reading your book i was just drawing the parallels because i find it you know in in certain environments obviously everything you've said in here rings true in terms of the way that there is a role for the state and you, you actually start one of the chapters by saying big government is back and i find that to be a very sad realization not a good one tax you know regulation people getting in the way of each other just making nonsense rules about hand sanitizer or about whether or not you should wear open shoes. I mean, our government was famously making the most capricious and ridiculous rules at the beginning of lockdown that did zero to help people, did zero to help build an infrastructure. We were told two weeks to flatten the curve. Not a single field hospital was built. We're still sitting with exactly the same infrastructure we had back then, only we've lost 500 billion to graft and corruption. And I I just think it's very, very different here.
0: Well, I think we we have slightly different views on on some of these things. But, of course, South Africa is totally different. Every country is unique. And poor countries, and i class South Africa as a middle-income country, uh, have very different challenges to rich governments because what the governments can do and, um, you know, their capacity. And state capacity uh, is extremely weak. And, you know, ESCOM... Energy systems in South Africa need radical reform uh and they they obviously also have been hollowed out by corruption in the in the zuma years uh but my well, view well, but the, but there is some electricity i mean it's, it's you know you you exaggerate
1: and say there's no obviously there's you know they're blackouts uh and yeah, that's yeah. not good but you it's, mentioned, but it, you, you, you it's, mentioned the township uh you know guy who's selling meat i mean for him. Uh, one outage is is a month's, sure. a month's sure. loss of stock, you know. So it sure does never. really affect at that level. So I, I don't want to get stuck in the reads here with you, though, because I actually thought that this book was extraordinarily insightful when it comes to things like what the goals should be after this. And I thought that maybe is something that we could talk about because what you're projecting going forward from this is, is a way to do things a little bit better. And I hear this horrible slogan, Build Back Better, from Boris Johnson, who I see has gone back into into quarantine, even though he had the the virus and has been vaccinated, gives absolutely no pacification to those people who are standing, waiting to still get vaccinated. But anyway, he's um, using this term, build back better. I've heard Joe Biden using it. It seems almost as if it's been trotted out as a memorandum to everybody to, to sell this to people. What will we do to build back better? And how can we make sure that this isn't just propaganda?
0: Well, every country is going to be different. Every place is going to be different. And companies need to build back better as well. And we need to build that better in our lives. I think the my hope is that we don't go back to how we were before. Because then all this horror, all the loss, and everyone, not least in South Africa, knows someone that's been badly affected by the pandemic will just be repeated again. Um, so we build back better by... I think not in I'm hearing a bit of this from you, Gareth, not just saying, OK, government's a complete mess. We can't do anything. Let's pay less tax. That's just going to make the problem worse. It's going to make government weaker. Um, I think we need to pay our taxes. We need to fight for a government that works. Uh, we need to fight for crime prevention. We need to fight for health systems. We need to fight for the things that work. Private sector has a massive role to play. Business uh, for South Africa has done an incredible job in South Africa on vaccines and on many other areas, support them. Uh, and I think at the global level, we also recognize that we're not safe until everyone's safe. So until we prepare to really fix these broken global institutions, whether it's the World Health Organization or World Trade Organization or others, we're not going to be safe anywhere in the world and certainly not even in the rich countries. That's what this has shown. So focusing on the big threats we face, Pandemics, climate change, global inequality and poverty is a global priority. Um, if the pandemic serves as a wake-up call to reinvigorate all of this, then I think we're on the right track. And the big metaphor I use in the book um, and talk about is the comparison of the First and Second World Wars. That happened in the middle of the Second World War. You know, a whole new system was created that stopped another world war till this day. It's done that, Uh, that created all sorts of institutions for the reconstruction of Europe, which was devastated, not, and especially focused on the losers in the war Germany, Japan, incredibly successfully. That's the lesson we need to take away, not the first world war, okay? The roaring that led to a roaring 20s. We Which don't need to great depression and the fascism and another war. That's where we are unless we ch- change our ways.
1: But these supranational bodies, these United Nations, World Health Organization and all the spin-offs, the World Trade Organization, they seem to me to just be employment for bureaucrats. I mean, no, the right. act- no, no, I mean, I'm being absolutely cynical here. But frankly, the United Nations isn't something that, that touches most people in the civilized world's lives. And in the, in, in the world that is, that is under huge duress, the world that's under pressure, the world of places like Cameroon, where the beers have been in control for, what, 28 years or something, Anytime time they see the UN is when someone's shooting at someone else. It's, it's not, this is not uh, particularly... Yeah, because the system does In the last 20 years.
0: Because the system isn't what you want it to be, doesn't mean you have to throw it out. Means you have to help fix it, um, but I said,
1: and I think and and in democracy and 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 yeah, and as yeah. well, right? Yeah,
0: no, I mean the system, <laughs> democracy is very imperfect, but it's better than the alternatives. Right. Um, and in this one is part of the solution. Uh, you don't get a solution if everyone just said it's bugged. Uh, you know, then then we all bug it uh, because then we have no hope, really no hope. If everyone says it is very imperfect, there's lots of massive problems, we know what they are, We, or everything is, but we'll be part of the solution, then you have hope. Then you have hope for a better world. And that's what, I mean, what rescue is about, you know, the idea of rescue comes from obviously when you're rescued from a shipwreck or drowning or something. It doesn't mean you're going to have a great life. It means that you're going to have a chance to have a great life. (laughs) Um,
1: And that's really what it's about. Just holding up the book so people can see it, too. Thank so, you. <laughs> if not, so if, so I, I don't want to dwell too much on the supranational bodies, but I do think that there is an international shift in in power and influence, which is happening. And it's been happening for some time now. You mentioned that, too, and you go into some detail in the book about the role of China, the emergence of you know the new superpower, and the and the, the decline, which I think is it's not controversial to say that America has reached its apogee and is starting to slide um and whether that slide happened 20 years ago or whether it's the last year it's certainly happening um and and do you think that slide is overall a good thing for people who who want a, a, a free liberal society or do you think that it's mostly a bad thing and what can we look forward to if China are to rear their their heads and and dominate
0: yeah, for me, it's not so much whether it's a good or bad thing, but it's because I don't think we, anyone's going to stop it. And I certainly think that the the current attempts by the U.S. to um, stop it are going to backfire. Uh, and making countries like South Africa or any country choose between China and the U.S. is absolutely the wrong approach. We go back to a Cold War, like the Cold War we had with the Soviet Union and the U.S., where countries had to choose them. There were conflicts over it all around the world. And global growth is slower. Global trade grows slower. Job creation is slower. Global poverty reduction. Everyone loses in that world except the arms manufacturers, um, in, in, in the respective countries. So that's not the answer. So the question is not is China rising? It is and it's going to continue. And the U.S. is relative weight in the world, relative, not absolute. The U.S. economy will continue to grow. People will get richer there, but they were, but China will be, Slowly catching up. That's good. Um, I mean, China's, it, as long as it creates more global growth, more poverty reduction and helps solve problems. So the, the question in my mind is, how do the U.S. and China work together in that world? Uh, no, it's not a zero sum game. What we've, one thing we've learned from the history of trade is that when more countries grow, the world economy grows and poverty reduction has a potential for being increased. It's not a mercantilist thing that China gains at the yeah. U.S.'s lost. Yeah. I mean, yeah. one of the reasons the U.S. has done so well over the last 20 years and consumers have got wealthier is because of the rise of China, investment in China, cheaper goods and services from China. Mm-hmm. That's That's been hugely yeah. beneficial. So now the question is, how do the two work together to fix climate change, to stop the next pandemic? And in the process, how do you become frenemies? How do you say we disagree with you fundamentally on human rights? On the suppression of democracy in Hong Kong, or anything else you want to disagree with, and still we recognise we have a common interest in dealing with climate change, you, and pandemics, think, and other things.
1: Do you think China has been an honest player in the world up to now? I mean, you mentioned Hong Kong. We know about Tibet. We know about the Uyghurs in the north uh, west. We know about the, the 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 genesis of this pandemic. All of this seems to make China look like they're not actually interested in being honest players with the rest of us. And you can't play games with people if they're not going to be honest about their intentions or try to cover things up or try to make things obscure. And we know we've got a Chinese Communist Party who are actually feeling quite disconnected from their own population at the moment in terms of the fact that that population, the largely rural, largely poor population of China, while they've raised many people up up into the middle class, uh, that population, when there isn't growth, is going to become very jittery, and will make rule for them a little bit harder, and perhaps we'll see more autocracy rather than less.
0: Well, (laughs) once again, there's there's much that you say, there's much uh, that we could talk about, and I disagree with some of it, but China will, I think, continue to grow at over 5% for the next 20 years. As long as you're doing that, you're not going to lose power. Um, you know, people say there's a crisis in China because they're only growing at 7.9% at the moment. Well, in our dreams, anywhere else in the world, we want to, to grow at that amount. As long as people's incomes are rising, poverty has been reduced, there's huge support uh, for the ring. So forget about regime change in China. The question is, can you work with the government, even if you disagree with them? Uh, and there, I think there's there's just no option. Um are they honest? Are they dishonest? I, I think, you know, in the same way that uh, other governments are honest and dishonest, maybe more so in covering up them. Tibet and, and the Uyghurs. No, but, but, but when it comes to cli- something that we want to work together on, like climate change, uh, they're doing more than the rest of... They're certainly doing more than any other country in the world. So there's certainly some things you can have a shared interest in. But when it comes, to, when it comes When it comes to pandemics my own view is they have a huge interest in stopping the next pandemic. You know, I don't want to get into the debate because I don't know the details and I don't think anyone in the world really does of where this pandemic came from, uh, exactly how it started. But, you know, I wrote a book in 2014 where I said there will be a global pandemic. The next pandemic could come from the U S the next pandemic could come from South Africa. It could come from anywhere. So it's not so much worrying about, what was the exact cause of this pandemic? But can we stop the next one? Can we stop pandemics? And that we have to work together. There's no solution to any global problem that we're not going to have to work with China on. And so the question is, how do we work with them? Uh, not really, you no, know, we try and keep them down or something. That's just a meaningless thing in my view to,
1: well, I to agree with you. We can't. we can't. I mean, there's, there's no stopping that tide. But what I'm interested in here is your, your book does sort of vacillate between the optimism of a better world that we can we can create, and the pessimism of there's something terrible coming and we're going to have to deal with it. And those two seem to me to to create quite a lot of tension in the book.
0: Well, that's what the book's about. I mean, the book is, unless We you know, we, we're on a road that's going over a cliff um, for all sorts of reasons. And to the extent that and, – and, and, and things could get a lot worse. We think they're bad now, but they could get a lot worse. So the question is, that's the bad news. The good news is we know what a lot of this stuff is. We're waking up to it. There's a global awareness. There's actions. There's scientific solutions. There's democratic and other solutions. And the question is, are we going to act on it? And this is exactly the choice that we that countries have been faced in the world wars. You know, that that we've been here before. And the, my hope is, and that's why I work on b- books like this. And this rescue book is particularly about that. The question is, if we understand these things, do we change our minds and act differently?
1: What do you think of things like universal basic income and the idea that so many people have been out of work or at least been working from home and perhaps you know doing things differently for the first time with a with a valid excuse to do so? And we've maybe been able to experiment with some new ways of work. I know this is something you you are busy with at Oxford, how do you think the, the workplace is going to change? How do you think people will feel if they're given the opportunity to rather just get government money and sit at home? And, and we've already well, got... I, to-
0: I, you know I, I wrote an opinion piece in the Financial Times um, some time back, which said five reasons why UBI is a bad idea. So I think you know, UBI is a bad idea. And the basic reason is the universal word. Uh, because universal means everyone gets it, and that means that uh, you give it to billionaires, you give it to everyone, which means, and that's a second point, that actually it increases poverty because poor people get less in many countries than they're getting at the moment. I do believe in basic income. I believe that no one should starve in our societies, um, and uh, certainly those that can afford to stop starvation should do it through basic income. But I also believe in the meaning of work. And I think people need to work. I think the objective of society should be full employment or close to full employment. And um, we get so much from work. We get our meaning. We get our status. We get our networks. We get skills. We get income. Uh, and it's incredibly important to people. So the idea that you pay people to stay at home seems like a real cop-out. Uh, on the other hand, if people don't have income through no fault of their own, and I'd certainly put pandemic impact on that
1: lockdown
0: yeah then you need to support them and have a basic income but only give it to people who need it so it should be means tested you know i'm not i think the cutting of the social grant in south africa was a mistake uh because people desperately need that money uh and i you know it's actually not that big a budget compared to many other expenditures so i would prioritize that sort of thing the the question on the future of work is 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 added to this because. In my group in Oxford, we're doing a lot of work on robotics and automation, the future of work. And it's been accelerated by the pandemic. We are seeing increasingly some people can work at home. Some are being increasingly uh, replaced by machines, basically. And call centers are very vulnerable to this uh, with with the new technologies, but also manufacturing of different types. And there we need to think how, what, where the new job's going to come from um, and work out ways in which we can create enough jobs. But I think the prospect of societies in which large segments of society can never get a job, and that's sort of you know something that South Africa needs to worry about very deeply, yeah. is not a good one. Uh, I think it's a recipe for political uh, uh, disaster, and it's also a recipe for people feeling very depressed and all sorts of things that come out of that, including crime, including other, cool, really. other side effects.
1: It's a very good moment to bring in your, your chapter on mental health, which uh, you've given some attention to in this book too. I can't help but think that part of the reason that we've seen this, this outbreak of violence last week in South Africa is obviously there's political manipulation going on. There is huge factionalism in our otherwise completely failed uh, majority party uh, who've, who've done absolutely nothing right in the last two years. And despite Cyril Ramaphosa having great intentions, it seems that the ANC is collapsing under him, whether he likes it or not. Jacob Zuma did a lot of that damage, but a lot of those people who are in Cyril's government were in the room while Jacob Zuma was making his uh, nefarious decisions and, and alliances. The, a lot of the reason people were so upset last week is it was just the spark that provided an excuse for them to to break out in 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 some way from the the lockdowns and from the pandemic and from all of the damage that that's done to families and to jobs and everything else. You you highlight some of this in your in your chapter on mental health. How do you think that's going to go in the future?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I think there's a whole lot of Things that went into the fires and the riots in South Africa um, in the last weeks, which are, are clearly a terrible combination, uh, but at, but the fuel for it is a lot of desperation as well. Uh, and um, I think it's mental health has been a m- major major issue which has been neglected, uh, not only in South Africa but around the world in the UK. When you look at the data on this. It's really very upsetting. A lot of young people particularly have sacrificed enormously social lives, education, take, job prospects, etc. And the stress on people across the board is enormous. And it's also leading to some really nasty stuff. Uh, you know, incidences of attacks on women at home and all of that uh, are, are rising in the pandemic. So, again, the rescue dimension to this, which I focus on, is by talking about it, and people are talking about it more, can we do more about it? Can we help fix this problem? Uh, And how do we do it? And that's basically what the chapter is about.
1: There's another part to this, which is, I suppose, um, something that might interest a lot of people, and that is that largely some of these ideas around how we can make a better global world might not be taken up in some places. There might be parts of the world, maybe here in Africa too, where they're not particularly interested in uh, some of the points that you've raised here, that some of the things that are going on in the European Union or in the US or in the UN, for that matter, they they would prefer sovereignty. There's a rise in kind of nationalism. There's a there's a rise in populism in some places, which should worry many of us. Do you think that this is a, a Byzantine or Roman situation where the, the influence just can't go much further? It becomes unwieldy. And where these global ideals... And, you know, the G7 who meet and shake each other's hands and chart out a path for the rest of the world, where these things become disintermediated to the degree that, you know, there's some country somewhere that just doesn't care anymore and stops listening.
0: Yeah, um, I mean, it's the, the, the books written with a global audience in mind, but it's the data and the evidence that I cite is largely evidence that where it was available. Um, mm-hmm. You know, depends what the problem is you focused on. You don't need global solutions for most problems we face. I mean, most things should be done. I really believe in subsidiarity and that we should do things at the lowest possible level, not only um, at the international country level, but communities, cities, you know, that. And when you look at the big problems we face, many things could be dealt with. And actually, it's also who causes the problem. You know, on climate change, New York State produces more carbon emissions than 48 countries in sub-Saharan Africa. Frankly, it doesn't really matter what some countries do. Right. Um, it's where you be- when you become richer and when you become more connected, that's when you really start impacting on others. You know, I impact the world because I fly so much. I impact the world because I consume more. But if you're in a small village in a poverty-stricken country, you really what you do is not going to change the world much or will have a negative impact on the world. So that really matters. And that's why I really believe that we need coalitions of the working. Uh, And often they're not governments, often they're companies. Look at the vaccine thing, it's largely a company thing, not a government thing So, uh, and the other examples of this including when they like closed the ozone uh, hole on the fight against hiv aids again the private sector was incredibly important but they wouldn't have done that unless they were shamed into doing it by community organizations by ngos not by governments uh who pushed them into it companies are very important cities can be incredibly important uh there are lots of different business networks that can be important. So I'm not a believer that basically there's big brother that we've got to give all our problems to and then we're going to have a happy world. On the contrary, unless we fix the problems ourselves, we're not. But there are some things, and pandemics and stopping pandemics are one of them, that we really do need more global cooperation. It's also the case that when you're in a terrible situation in a country that's dysfunctional, a Yemen situation, then you need outside actors, to come and help you. And we have, I believe, a global responsibility to other human beings around the world to, if we can help, to help. And the question is when and how you do that. So I think, you know, I yes, there's lots of places where uh, things are going to get on. The problem is if you think you, that you somehow your country is immune to the world, then you have a problem. And that's the problem that the US has had, I think, uh, for, you know, too long basically withdrawing from helping solving the problems and not realizing the negative impact you have, including in the U.S.'s case through
1: climate change, for example. So you've raised climate change a couple of times. I'm I'm curious as to how you think we can take this monster down because it does require massive scale change and not just change on, on the behavioral local level, although I agree with you completely about the fact that that is where most of the important decisions should and can be made. This is, a, this is a different thing to tackle. And, you know, New York State's uh, carbon emissions, notwithstanding China and India and Pakistan, are probably producing 20 times that at this stage. Um, what can we do? Because you did mention China is coming to the party on, on climate change. What kind of pressure do nation states respond to best at this time? Shame? Uh, guilt? Uh, fear? Well, like, how do we get them to cooperate together? Huh? How do we, as ordinary people... See to it that our governments do the right thing, because in many cases they don't.
0: I mean, the, the thing about nation states and politicians that I've, I've observed is that they're very happy to go to New York to, or some conference somewhere in Paris or wherever, Bali, and sign a piece of paper and saying they're going to do the right thing. It's a different matter. Are they going to do the right thing following through with it? And so I think, you know, transparency and, and there's a lot of great citizens organizations that are increasingly holding governments accountable where it's possible. And it's not possible in autocratic governments, but it is possible in South Africa. The other thing is that the international community promised $100 billion a year for developing countries if they were going to do the right thing. That money hasn't materialized. So the rich countries have a huge responsibility. And I think uh, so do the development countries. You know, In South Africa, ESCOM is in a mess. The solution for South Africa is not building more power, coal power stations as it's done, but actually to make a more rapid transition to renewable energy. And we've seen the effectiveness of that. If the money invested in coal power had been invested in renewable energy, we wouldn't have the outages we have today. At the same time, the politics demand that we worry about, and we should anyway worry about the coal miners and the others that are going to lose their jobs. So a just transition... Helping those that are going to suffer as a result of the change, but focusing resolutely on it, setting renewable targets is vital. Um, South Africa happens to be one of the biggest polluters uh, of carbon and other greenhouse gases in the southern hemisphere. So it matters what South Africa does. Most African countries, uh, it's much less of a problem.
1: And finally, because you do cover so many different things in this book, it really is, it's a very interesting read and I would recommend it to anybody. The, the world that you see as being better, the kind of world that we could build after this, what are the, what are the characteristics of that world? And, and how, how much will it differ from what we've got? Because you know and I know people hate change, even when change is forced upon them by something like a pandemic. So what would we have to look forward to and what should we be wary of in this world that's coming at us? Because, you know, numbers and statistics and agreements between politicians don't mean much to ordinary people.
0: I think what, you know, what we all need to internalize, and South Africans know this because those that are old enough did this when they... Embrace the change of the end of apartheid, a massive change. I mean, um, and I don't think anyone wants to go back to the apartheid period, even with all the faults and warts of the current system. It
1: would be, hard, it'd be um, hard to find such a person. Exactly. That was <laughs> a
0: radical change defined, that people recognized like was necessary.
1: It's like finding someone who supported uh, Jacob Zuma in... in, in <laughs> exactly. 1990, uh, um, but it, because it was
0: unsustainable. Now, you think that change is worrying, but staying the same in the same system is totally more worrying. It's not going to work for you or your kids. Uh, And that's the way we are in the world. I mean, if we go back to the world we had before, we'll have more pandemics. Who wants that? We'll have escalating climate change. Who wants that? We're going to have all sorts of other risks. Um, And so Although change seems scary, it's far to me. It's far less scary than the alternative, which is the world that we're heading to, um, and and what that has. So that's one sort of argument. Now, not everything's going to change. I mean, people are going to live that are living good lives are going to have to be allowed, and will continue to live good lives. But maybe they're going to use renewable energy. Maybe they're going to pay a bit more tax. They're going to be sub- more supportive of those in need, and worrying so far, more about the system.
1: But you're not sketching a terribly good picture for, for the majority of the people who will be buying this book. And then Why you know, not? I mean, well, because I'm, I'm telling
0: them that if, they, if, if we don't change, telling, we've telling just got a, a, a scarier tax. and scarier future.
1: Paying more tax in a country like this means giving half of what you've earned to people who are going to steal it for themselves, not put it back into the economy. So no. telling me that more tax is coming is not a sales point.
0: Well, I mean, the book is the book is not only about South Africa, and also I don't think I, the assumption that the tax goes to stealing, uh, it, Gareth. It, I mean, it's, it, is 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 a huge exaggeration. I, I, I assure um, you,
1: if, if you if you if you pay attention to where that money's gone in the last while, there's no, there is absolutely no uh, mystery as to where it's gone. It's gone uh, precisely uh, into the pockets of politicians. No, no,
0: no. The lights might no. No, not, not 100%. <laughs> Even you don't to, to claim it with yeah. 100%. Yes. When, when it's 5%, it's too much. If it's 1%, it's too much it corrupt. I completely agree with that. But you can't begin to – you can't have a government without tax. I mean, you can't have a justice service. You can't have police. You can't have anything. You can not have any of those but, things, and we're still you know, paying tax. No, you do, but it's just not what you want it to be. Um the, you know, I, <laughs> South Africa is, and I know it well, South Africa has a lot, doesn't, but it has huge problems. Um, and it, certainly some of the tax goes to, I would say most of the tax goes to good purpose, but too much leaks, too much goes to corrupt officials. And a lot of the corruption is not actually through government. It's through the procurement system and through the private sector as well. That needs to be fixed, but it's not a reason not to pay tax. And certainly, uh, I believe in the closing of tax havens. I believe in the, that everyone needs some tax responsibility. You can't have an effective state without revenue. Now, that is not a guarantee of effectiveness. You've also got to stop corruption. You've got to have transparency and effective judiciary. South Africa is lucky that its judiciary is still effective.
1: Some of the time.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, which <We're> is <laughs> better than none of the time.
1: <laughs> For very rich people, the judiciary does an enormous amount of good because you can afford very expensive lawyers. Uh, That's not the case for the average South African. It's amazing to me that we've got not one person in jail for graft and corruption, um, even though we've had billions and billions stolen from us. But, you know, someone is caught dealing weed on the street and they're a poor black person from a township and they go straight to jail. You know, that's not a a judiciary worth keeping. In its place, if you ask me. Gareth, Gareth, if you were to abolish the judiciary, you
0: would uh, be much worse off. Uh, Be careful careful what you wish for.
1: I promise you, I'm no anarchist, but it's pretty close to that. You know, 97% of our municipalities in this country have not got clean audits, which means that most of those municipalities are running on the smell of an oil rag. And in some cases, they've completely failed which means those people in most of those municipalities already know what anarchy feels like. Um, I'm not, I'm not raising the specter of this. This is the reality. Yeah. And as much as uh, I found it, you know, it, it's, it's encouraging in your book that governments have been able to, in some ways, assert themselves during this crisis, because I do think government was getting smaller and smaller and less and less important to people over the last 20, 25 years. But in some places, the more power an incompetent government has, the worse things could be. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean,
0: we've seen this in many countries. But the difference between the countries where governments are the problem, not the solution, uh, and or leaders are, not so much the governments, and, I, you know, there's a lot of this in, I think, the mistakes that India's made, the mistakes that Turkey's made, the mistakes Brazil have made, uh, and mistakes the UK have made. Uh, dramatically, and under Trump, the U.S. made. This is th- the danger of having populist governments that don't follow the evidence, that basically get swung with the window, which go down sort of rabbit warrens of, of fake news. So, I mean, what to me the lesson is, is that the governments are incredibly important. You better make sure that the people you, if you're lucky enough to vote for a government in a democracy, that the people you put in power are going to be effective.
1: Well, we'll get the governments we deserve, right?
0: Exactly. <laughs> and it's a
1: very, very interesting book. Um, it's called "Rescue from Global Crisis to a Better World." I'm very, very proud that there's a South African at Oxford uh, putting out this excellent material, and uh, encourage people to check in on that as well as all your other books. God, you've written a you've written a few books here. I mean, I'm just looking at your bibliography; it's substantial. Yeah, well, been busy. Um, I think this, one is, your, you I think this one's your... the most interesting at the moment. <laughs> you weren't just sitting at home waiting for a um, a, a furlough payment from the government. No. no, no. Fortunately, so, I, I've been able to find alternative employment. <laughs> well, it's very good to talk to you, and thank you for your time today. Okay. And, Great, Gary. Take care. we'll be hearing from yeah. you again. Thank you. Ian Golden.